Funding for WPLN News comes from you, our listeners, and Bernstein Private Wealth, working with creators and innovators to invest with intention and build the legacy they want to leave behind. More at Bernstein.com. I'm Khalil A. Colonna, and this is Nashville. When the COVID-19 pandemic hit, mayors across the country scrambled to get vital information to an increasingly worried public. Here in Nashville, the role of public health department director had yet to be filled, and Mayor John Cooper was looking for someone to help our city's efforts. The person he turned to was surprised to get the nod. Vanderbilt trauma surgeon Dr. Alex Jahangir led the COVID-19 task force for two years. He chronicles how this experience changed his life in the new book, Hotspot, a doctor's diary from the pandemic. Later this hour, we'll talk with him about what he's learned and what the future may hold. But first, a new episode of the podcast, Reveal, explores our state's history with convict leasing. It follows an archeologist as she researches a 19th century prison stockade located in Tracy City, Tennessee. The men in the stockade, mostly African-American, were forced to work in nearby mines owned by the company Tennessee Coal, Iron and Railroad, which later merged with U.S. Steel. Margie Mason ex- reports on forced labor for the Associated Press. She focuses on the Tennessee aspect of the story for Reveal, and she joins us now. Margie, welcome to This is Nashville. Hi, thanks for having me. Thank you so much for being here. Now, you know, I think the term defines itself, but tell us, what is convict leasing? Well, I think a lot of people um, aren't really sure what convict leasing is. They might not have heard about it. They might not have ever studied it in school if it was ever taught. Um, Convict leasing basically started after the Civil War um, in the South when states were, you know, kind of looking for a way to continue um, having free or cheap labor. And so they were rounding up people and most of them were young black men for minor crimes most of the time. And they were putting them to work in places like uh, coal mines for private companies. So in simple terms, this is kind of a legalized form of slavery? Yeah, it's been called uh, the new slavery or slavery by another name. Tell me, how did this practice of convict leasing, how did it show up here in Tennessee? Well, basically in Tennessee, um, they, after the Civil War, they didn't have a lot of money for prisons. And so, um, you know, some of the uh, businessmen came along with this idea. Some of them were uh, former Confederate officers. um, And they said, hey, you know, we can... uh, pay you to lease out these prisoners and we can put them to work and pay the state a fee for that. And so they went to work, as I said, in places like coal mines, on railroads. Um, They were in in Florida, they were harvesting uh, turpentine. They went onto plantations in various places, uh, timber. They were doing lots of different things and essentially helping to build America. Now you discovered the prison stockade in Tracy City which was a pretty brutal place. Can you can you tell us about some of the conditions that people endured there? Yes, it was it was a very brutal place and in the state records you can actually find reports that were written um you know they didn't have uh, 
they didn't have a lot to eat. The nutrition was poor. Um, they made them, um, you know, wear the same clothes for one or two weeks at a time. So you think about it, they're going into a coal mine where it's filthy, they're wet, there's no way for them to get clean or dry. And then they're, you know, having to come back and sleep in these filthy clothes. And if they have wounds, you know, there's really no way to get to get clean. They didn't have warm clothes in the winter um, and they were whipped. Uh, they were, if they didn't meet their, their quotas, uh, getting the amount of coal that they were supposed to get out, they would be um, stripped naked and, and beaten with a whip. In the podcast, you all report that 10% of the people there died, right? Yeah. So, um, you know, in the years that the stockade was operating, you know, it was, um, yeah, up to 10% of people uh, were dying every year. And these were recorded again in the state records for things such as, um, you know, diseases like tuberculosis, typhoid fever, but you also had people being killed from falling slate. Um, sometimes they were killed by other uh, prisoners or sometimes they were killed while trying to escape. Now, these men were used to work for free in the mines. How did white, yes. how did white workers respond to this system of convict leasing? Well, this was very interesting in Tennessee. Um, the free, mostly white miners, you know, they were complaining about this because they were bringing prisoners in and they were essentially, you know, taking their jobs and they were impoverished as well. And they were also looking at the conditions and saying, you know, this isn't right. And one of the things that um, also was going on at that time is they were bringing these prisoners to, um, you know, coal mines where, where free miners were striking for better conditions and better wages. And so they were essentially using these prisoners as scabs. Mm. And um, this went on for a while. And finally, I think it reached a boiling point and the free miners started to push back and really revolt. And at times they would burn stockades down. Um, they would release the prisoners and put them on trains back to the penitentiary in Nashville. Or, you know, it's sometimes they would just say, hey, here's a clean pair of pants and a shirt. And you know, take this and be on your way. They would actually set them free um, from time to time. Now, I haven't taken place so long ago, it's difficult to imagine what this really looked like. But you got a glimpse when you met with Travis Turner, who comes from a long line of miners, about a photo that his father had. Let's take a listen to that. There you go. Wow. One of the most important artifacts in his collection is the image I've come to see. I think this photograph is probably from the 1890s. We're looking at a large collection of men, armed men, uh, around looks like one unfortunate convict wearing his stripes. Two lines of white men stand in front of the stockade's tall wooden walls. They're holding rifles, and some are dressed up in ties, black derby hats, and suit vests. The prisoner is sitting on the ground in front of them. He's the only black person in the photo. He looks hopeless, and his fate must have been bad. This image captures in a flash the brutal power dynamics of the convict leasing system. So one of the first things that resonates with me about that photograph is you can pick up on the emotional undertones of what's going on. Tania Kuntz heads the Nashville chapter of the Afro-American Historical and Genealogical Society. 
She's thought a lot about the man in the photo. None of us know who he is or what happened to him. Does he make it out of the stockade? Is he one of the many that died at the stockade? And if it is the end of his story, the fact that we have this picture means that we can make sure that we honor him in a way to use it as an expression of, okay, this is what happened at the stockade. We are telling the story. Your life did not end there. It makes me want to cry because, you know, you're just, you're looking at this scene and just, it's atrocious. You know, that's pretty powerful. These are stories that I'm sure a lot of people just don't know. Why is it important to tell these stories? Well, I mean, I think for us in, in digging into this, we just kept thinking we have the names of all these people who were sent here and all of these people who died here and their history can't be lost. Their names can't be lost. And I think, um, you know, again, one of the things that really surprised us was that every time we would tell people about this project, um, we kept hearing, I've never heard of this. What is this? How do I not know about this? And I think, you know, history is what shapes today. It what, It's what shapes the future. And I think it's really important that we all understand our history because that's how we move forward and make different choices today. Now, you know, Tennessee Coal, Iron and Railroad merged with U.S. Steel after it moved its operations to Birmingham, Alabama. Has there been any recognition from U.S. Steel about this particular history? Well, you know, there was a book that was written, um, you know, I believe it was published in 2009 called Slavery by Another Name um, by Doug Blackman. And he looked at this and really kind of brought up um, the, the cemetery that is still on U.S. Steel property in, in Birmingham. And at that point, he was really asking U.S. Steel to acknowledge this and, and do something. And they and they didn't. And so we went back to them today and said, hey, you know, where are things? And they, you know, came back and said that they didn't have records, um, but they would be willing to meet with um, some folks from the community in Birmingham. And so I think, you know, we'll see what what happens going forward. But, it, it you know, it'll be interesting to see, you know, again, if this history just stays in the past or if it's something that's acknowledged as we're seeing in other cities and other places in, in America. Margie Mason is a reporter for the Associated Press. She reported for the most recent episode of the Reveal podcast, which listeners can find at revealnews.org. Margie, thanks for being with us and thanks for bringing this story to light. Thank you so much. We have to take a short break. When we come back, we'll talk with Dr. Alex Jahangir, who led Nashville's COVID-19 task force. Tweet us a question at This Is Nashville. We'll be right back. Khalil Ekelona, and this is Nashville. In March of 2020, everything changed for Dr. Alex Jahangir. At that time, he was asked by Mayor John Cooper to head up Nashville's COVID-19 task force. For Dr. Jahangir, he never thought he would be in the position of addressing the public during a global pandemic. He quickly adapted to the position and made notes about his experience, which he shares in the new book, Hotspot, A Doctor's Diary from the Pandemic. 
I'm happy to welcome him to the show. Dr. Jahangir, welcome to This is Nashville. Thank you so much. Pleasure to be with you today. Really nice to have you here with us. So I know a lot has changed since March 2020, but COVID is still with us. And I know it's not your gig anymore, but I have to ask, where are we now with COVID? Well, you know, we are at a um, a place where the virus is still very much with us. And, and we are actually, I think, heading on the downward end of a surge that all of us have probably been through, the B5. Um, but here's where we are now compared to where we were in March in 2020. We now have vaccines that have shown to save lives, to keep morbidity down. We have um, testing that's so available. In March 2020, when this happened, the only way to make an invisible enemy visible was to test, and, and what a challenge that was in 2020. But now testing's easily available. And then we also have medications um, and Paxlova and other things that can help kind of keep things um, at bay. Now, with that said, though, this virus is with us. Um, some may say the pandemic's over, some may say it's not, but people are still getting sick, people are still dying. You know, we've lost over 1,700 Nashvilleians because of this disease, mm. and that's still happening today. Now, uh, you said people say the pandemic's over, other people say that it's not. Well, President Biden went on 60 Minutes on Sunday and said the pandemic's over. What's your response to that? Well, I think the acute phase of the pandemic probably is, is over, right? So um, we have all... We are all learning to to live with it. We all, again, as I mentioned, there's ways we can protect ourselves, get vaccinated. We should be very welcoming and open to people who want to wear masks. Um, we have medications out there. Um, but to say that the pandemic's over and imply, which I don't think the president has implied this, to imply that the virus is just gone miraculously is is not accurate. Mm-hmm. Um, but just but it is with us, um, but I think we're in a very different phase now where we can all resume kind of what we were doing before with certain precautions. You know, on Monday morning, I got an email from a listener, Tracy Smith, who recently saw you on a panel advising that we continue to take the pandemic seriously. She's, she suggested two things. One, that we have you on the show as a guest. So that's a check. Thank you, Tracy. Thank you, Tracy. <laughs> You're prescient and we love that. You know, two, WPLN and or this or Nashville, she suggests that we give at least weekly reports of what the COVID numbers are. What do you think of that suggestion given where we're at? Well, I know the health department still puts out weekly numbers, the Metro Public Health Department. Um, you know, I get the reports myself still once or twice a week. Um, and so we do have put information out there. So I'd, I'd recommend um, looking you know, on, on the public health department's website, but also um, certain news outlets do bring it out. Um, but I think what I, w- I would say is, you know, especially as we're entering flu season as, and we're, you know, we have monkeypox here in Nashville. Um, at a certain point, one has to be just cognizant that there's diseases out there, numbers are out there. And we as a system and as, as news organizations need to be cognizant of if there's a spike or something changes, but the numbers are out there regularly available on the Metro Public Health Department's website. Let's move on to the, your book, How Hotspot, A Doctor's Diary from the Pandemic. First off, congratulations. Um, it's pretty cool. Thank you. Your experience is really unique. How did you decide that you were gonna write a book about it? Yeah, so, you know, in, in March of March 8th of 2020, we had a this first press conference in Nashville because. Um, March 7th, the first person tested positive. And so at that time, we didn't have a health department director. Um, he actually was scheduled to start March 9th. And so I was asked to be at that first press conference, um, my first ever time even seeing a press conference, much less speaking at one. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and my message was, look, we'll, we're following this. We'll, everything will be fine. We got this. 
Well, fast forward, obviously, very quickly, we all realized it wasn't fine. And um, the Mayor Cooper um, asked me to, to head this task force. And I thought probably like everyone else that within a couple of months, this would be over. And my um, just a few months before that, my uh, mother-in-law's father had passed away. And he was a World War II pilot in England. So she's, he's British. And he, she pulled out all these letters that he had written her mother about his time during war. And I was reading those and I was like, man, this is amazing. So my wife, his granddaughter, um, my kids, his great grandkids now could relive the, the time he spent in World War II. So mm-hmm. I, I said, you know, it'd be really neat is if I just kept a little note every day of what I did for a couple of months, because my kids at the time who were kindergarten, first grader and third grader aren't gonna remember this. And so every day I would start writing down number of cases, number of deaths, um, and then just what the issue was that day, what we did and so forth. A year and a half into this, I kept, I was keeping the notes still, and I went back and started reading my notes, and I remembered, gosh, we dealt with so much in that year in Nashville. Um, you know, not just with COVID, which, gosh, we dealt with a lot with that, but the uh, the tornadoes, the bombing, the systemic injustice that, that you know, and the George Floyd incidents, and, and just so much the city went through. And I, I mentioned it to a friend of mine, and, um, you know, one thing led to another, and here we are with, with a book. Now... You know, there's a lot we didn't know at the onset of the pandemic. And you got to see some preparations that Governor Lee had started to make in case things got bad, really bad. And then we all know they did get really bad. But then Governor Lee's response changed over time. You know, tell me about that experience that you witnessed. Well, I think the um, the big message for me is, is the you know, the relationship with the city and state was, was pretty solid throughout, throughout this um, pandemic. Um, early on... Um, you know, we set up our testing sites and, and they're ready to go in the first couple of weeks. The drive-through sites that everyone's probably used at Meharry Medical College ran for over two years. Um, the governor was the reason we were able to start those um, because we had everything set, but the swabs you needed to, to get the sample from the nose. And mm-hmm. so I remember meeting with the governor and quickly he went, um, he, he was annoyed, rightfully so, that this, you know, that, that we weren't able to get them because the company that he was helping support, um, pay for the city's test wasn't providing the swabs. And he literally went out on his own, on his helicopter and brought the swabs to Nashville. Um, 3,000 swabs to start and, and regularly. Um, the, so the state relationship has, was actually pretty, pretty solid through, um, through most of the pandemic. Um, our ability to do our safer at home orders, mask mandates were all done um, with, with the support and the kind of the mantra the governor had that, that local entities should, should handle um, response that made sense for them. Um, I did early on see the uh, Music City Center. Um, I remember touring this with Chief Swan um, and some members of the um, governor's staff and others. Um, it's about to be a 1,600-bed hospital. Mm-hmm. And um, we stopped. Um, thank goodness it was deemed that first surge kind of calmed down pretty quickly, and we stopped having to do that. But we built alternative care sites, the city or the state and the federal government did, at Meharry Medical College and in Memphis. And... You know, those sites were never opened, and I, I think um, you know, there's lots of reasons why it, it should or should not have been opened. But, but at the end of the day, um, the state really you know, helped this, allowed the city to kind of do some of the things we did. And sure, of course, in hindsight, could there have things been different? Of course. But I think for the most part, the relationship was pretty good. Let's move to June 2020, and Mayor Cooper is considering a citywide mask mandate. What was going on behind the scenes? <laughs> so June, I believe it was 26th. Um, no, numbers were going up. At that time, there was no vaccines. So people have to remember, this is a time when there was no vaccines. We didn't know what was, what was happening. People were dying. Um, 
and vaccine and excuse me, mask were noted to be probably the only um, real entity, the only thing that we had, only tool we had to maybe prevent the spread. And Mayor Cooper actually had had implemented a mask mandate within national buildings. But as far as the city was concerned, um, it would either have to be done in two ways, a mask mandate, either through the public health emergency order that um, the director of health was under and could implement a mask mandate, or a vote of the city council, which, um, as I've learned through this process, it takes three separate votes two weeks apart for anything through the city council to happen. So six weeks. Six weeks. Mm. And, and lives were being lost. Numbers were going up. And so um, we had a director of health who... Um, while in private, was supportive of a mask mandate. In fact, one of the first people I ever saw wearing masks was the director of health. In public, um, he started taking a hard stance that he wouldn't implement a mask mandate. And we, you know, he wanted the board of health to to essentially force his hand to give him cover, which, um, you know, we had the support of of both our hospital leadership, um, businesses that wanted cover, frankly, like businesses want to take care of their their people, um, wanted a mask mandate, but it was really hard for an individual business to do it without, if when all the business around them were open. And so we had to call an emergency meeting of the Board of Health to force this issue. And, and we did, and I'm glad we do. I still believe mask mandates worked and masks work. Um, but it just could have been a lot easier. And it was small behind the scenes turmoil that happened, I think, would sometimes cause some headaches. If you're just tuning in, this is Nashville, and I'm your host, Khalil Lekalona. We're talking this hour with Dr. Alex Jahangir about his new book, Hotspot. A Doctor's Diary from the Pandemic. Now, you had members of your own family who didn't want you to push for a mask mandate, right? What was that about? You know, so um, my father, who um, is a physician, has a master in public health, um, you know, he was worried because, unfortunately, um, masks became a symbol of, of political persuasion. Mm -hmm. And it became such a rift, whether one wants to wear a mask or not to wear a mask. And what I realized through this experience is, um, is unfortunately the, the, the city through social media, the world, frankly, has now become a, a schoolyard full of bullies. Um, when the mask mandate went in, and again, uh, there, there could be legitimate conversations around whether mask mandate was, was good or not. But what's not acceptable was, um, the anger, the threats that would be hurled at not just at me, but at others because of, of these decisions. And so my father, being a father who obviously um, cares about his son, saw these. And, um, you know, he wanted his son to be protected. And you got to rem remember his background, my parents and me, we moved here from Iran, a country that when we moved um, was under the Islamic Republic and, and people um, were attacked, people were put in prison, um, people were assassinated for... Um, what appeared to be trivial things. And, and while, of course, that never was the thought would, would happen here in America, my father lived that experience. Mm -hmm. And it always made him worry that, you know, and he, it made him worry for me as his son. It made, me wor it made him worry for where we were as a society. Now, you know, I understand like a lot of us, COVID caused you some anxiety. Moments like you just described are anxiety inducing. And unlike a lot of us, you had to continue to see patients regularly. And sometimes those patients had COVID. I wonder if you'd read a little bit about that from your book. Yeah. Um, so I'm going to read a passage from December 18th. Um, and, and December 18th for me was a, is an amazing day because I um, received my vaccine that day. I was part of the healthcare act. I practiced throughout the entire pandemic. And so, um, 
So this passage talks about um, the day I received my vaccination. For nine months, I had a reoccurring dream in which I watched myself in the ICU on a ventilator. This dream haunted my waking hours every time I knew I had been exposed to a COVID patient. I was racked with guilt that I was afraid of my own patients. I didn't sleep well, and given the schedule I was keeping, I became increasingly exhausted. But the sleep I got the night before my vaccination may have been the best I'd had since the pandemic started. As my conscious mind realized that the, face, that the days of facing down my personal fears every time I left home were about to end, my subconscious mind finally found some peace. I was ecstatic that soon I was going to be able to walk into a patient's room or a meeting at the Office of Emergency Management without worry. Even more important to me, I was soon going to be able to walk into my parents' house and hug them. Talking about side effects from the shot became a thing as more and more people got inoculated against COVID. When asked, I reported that my only negative side effect was a sore arm. I did not tell anyone but my wife, Helen, about the one positive side effect I experienced. After December 18th, my dreams of watching myself on a ventilator stopped cold. From that day on, I slept the sleep of the vaccinated. Wow. What do you think about that? You've had these, you know, disturbing dreams up until that point. And then after then, you were, you were free and relieved from them. Yeah. And, you know, on, on that date, um, I felt that way. I, I, I felt, you know, when I finally received my vaccines, my parents who were older, my grandmother, who was in her 90s, received it. Um, you know, I think COVID has impacted all of us um, one way or the other, right? I, I think anyone who says they've not been touched by COVID emotionally, physically, is is, is probably not telling the truth. And, and I was no different than anyone else. Um, I had three young children who were out of school. I had a wife who had to quit working. She became a statistic of, of women who left the workforce. Um, something that was very important to her um, so that I could have my two jobs. I had elderly parents. I had grandparents. Um, but I still was a full-time practicing surgeon. And, mm. and I think we all go through it in certain ways. And for me, um, while I think, think typically I'm very good at just compartmentalizing and not thinking about things, this dream, I, I still to this moment while I'm speaking to you right now, vividly remember it. And I was always at the foot of the bed looking up at myself on the ventilator and the sounds come back as we talk about it. And, mm. But, you know, I, th I think that's it, it's just all of us went through something. Yeah, yeah, we sure did. A lot of people have said the pandemic revealed how fragile our healthcare system really is. Like, did leading this COVID-19 task force, did that change the way that you see our healthcare system at all? You know, I've, I have an interesting vantage point, right? I've, I've been practicing in Nashville for 14 years um, at a great um, large tertiary medical center. What it actually did for me is, it's while I knew our center really well, I didn't know the two other larger tertiary systems in town. So between between Vanderbilt University Medical Center, Ascension St. Thomas and HCA TriStar, we have some great healthcare systems that are that are here locally. And with the regional hospitals, there's 3,000 beds or so here in our region. What I saw every day when I went to work were people dedicated to helping patients and helping each other. And that is that is pretty awesome. What I saw as a system wise is, you know, after, um, after actually this, this reading, the early, late December, um, our hospitals got really full, um, got to about a, um, a third of the beds were filled with COVID patients. There was really a worry that um, patients weren't going to be able to be transferred to Nashville, and we weren't able to take care of our own patients. And around the country, you're having patients transferring from Virginia to Tennessee or mm -hmm. Minnesota down to Indiana or wherever. Mm -hmm. 
our leaders of our three healthcare systems um, at the end of, as this surge was happening in December of 2020, said, you know what, we're going to make sure that no one in Middle Tennessee is left behind. No one has to die because there's not a bed. And they came together a very innovative regional transfer center that took a lot of coordination with the state, with the federal government, um, and it worked. We didn't have to use it in December 2020. Fast forward to the Delta surge in August of 21, and 700 patients in three months were kept in Middle Tennessee because they needed a bed. And while initially a bed wasn't available, quickly because of this innovation, a bed was available. So our healthcare systems are strong. They have great partnerships with each other when needs be. And um, and that gave me a lot of hope in, in what we have here in Middle Tennessee. Mm-hmm. We have to take a short break. When we come back, we'll continue our conversation with Dr. Alex Jahangir, who led the city's COVID-19 task force. Do you have a question for Dr. Jahangir? Tweet us at This Is Nashville. We'll be right back. Khalil Le Colonna, and this is Nashville. My guest is Dr. Alex Jahangir, trauma surgeon at Vanderbilt University Medical Center and former head of Nashville's COVID-19 task force. His experience in that role and how it affected his life are in the new book, Hotspot, a doctor's diary from the pandemic. Now, Dr. Jahangir, I want to explore how the pandemic and your new role affected you personally. You were turned into a public figure, figure pretty much instantly. Was that hard on you? You know, it it, it was pretty unique. Um, you know, I think in a time when everyone, you're right, I, I was a North Peak trauma surgeon. Um, if you knew me, it was because you probably were in a wreck. And okay. I was okay with that. Um but uh, very quickly, as you mentioned, I, my, it's not like my last name is is common. And so it, it became very evident, that, not just with me, but my kids, my parents, my wife. Anytime we go out, it, it became knowledgeable. And for the most part, this, it was very humbling, right? I, I think this community is a very kind community. Everyone was very, um, would, would rally around each other and everyone was, very, for the most part, supportive. What became interesting is um, how people who don't know you, um, project whatever they want to think about you onto you. And thus it becomes, um, it becomes, uh, if, if they don't like you, you know, you, you become an evil enemy to them and you're an evil person. If they think you're really great because of which saying words that you're this hero. And the reality is I'm neither, right? I'm, I'm just a person who has happened to, to be given this amazing opportunity to help um, and our community get through um, what I hope will be a once in a lifetime, if not many lifetime problem. And, but it's been very humbling. I think the support of this community for the, for the most part has been awesome. The other part that I kind of mentioned earlier is, is I also realized that how susceptible um, people are to bullying, um, whether it's through social media, I had a few encounters in person. And, and I just think as a society, we need to slow down and rethink how we approach certain things like that. And, and so it's just been very eye-opening for me. I want to ask you about that because COVID did become highly politicized and healthcare workers were targeted by people who thought that COVID was a hoax. You just kind of alluded to it just now in that answer. Were you targeted at all? Yeah, so there was a few incidents um, in person where, where people would come up to me. And, and, and what I found was um, 
the way I break this down is kind of three three groups, of, and I hate categorizing for most of but but three types of people. One one are people. One of the group of people that would come up to me were people that were hurting, right? And so, I mean, I remember this one gentleman. Um, I believe he's a photographer. Um, his wife was also in I think, the catering business, and their businesses were wrecked. And and I can I could see the pain in his face when he was speaking to me and maybe yelling at me. Um, and and I was again as as the face of of this for better or for worse and locally received some of that and I and I understand that. Then there was a group of people who I think were just frankly entitled for lack of a better word that you know they were just inconvenienced and so thus they felt that their inconvenience should be um, I should pay for their inconvenience. Mm-hmm. Okay, fair, fine. The third group, which was the most fascinating and also a little worrisome to me, are the group that that um, felt that there was this that their message was the right message. And I had a person come up to me and tell me he, the Lord sent him and, and the message he was delivering and it, it, it wasn't a friendly message for what it's worth. And, and it, just, it just really, again, opened my eyes to society. So yes, this COVID issue is a big deal, but think about all the other things we're dealing with as a society and, and knowing that these, these, these variables you have to navigate as a leader, um, I think really made me as somebody who sits in the stands mainly watching leaders navigate these big issues realize that, it's, that there are complexities involved. And, and, and let's talk about those complexities a little bit, because how did that really sit with you? We have the pandemic, which has a lot of people afraid. People are dying. We had George Floyd's murder, mm-hmm. which sparked a lot of aware, awareness and outrage with millions of Americans. We also had a presidential election that was highly politicized, highly contentious. All of this in this weird mystic brew of trouble in 2020. Yet here you are in this position, thrust to be the face of Nashville's Nashville's COVID response. How'd that sit with you? Well, you know, I think for me, I, I, you said the last thing was exactly right. I had one public role and it was to help um, navigate our city through COVID and advise the mayor and, and work with the public health department, office of emergency management. And I always remember that, right? So. While as a resident of the city, the George Floyd murders, it bothered me tremendously. And the presidential elections had my thoughts about my job was to, for lack of a word, stay in my lane around COVID. And the mayor on day, on the first time he and I ever met, and I did not know the mayor before this pandemic, um, said, look, I, I want you to lead this task force with experts, always rely on the science and always be transparent with him in the public. And I kept that mantra in my head throughout the entire um, time I was in this role. And then I also remembered, again, my role was was to focus on the pandemic. And um, a great example of this I write about in the book is when the, the bombing happened in the city. Um, obviously, the mayor had a lot to deal with, but I remember the mayor reached out to me late, um, I believe it was late that day. And his simple question is something we text almost every day. It's like, what do the numbers look like? And I remember while as a resident of Nashville, I was going through this bombing and not knowing all about it, it focused real quickly on me. My job is to advise the mayor. I told him the numbers. I told him what was going on. And, and I think that's how I personally, uh, in my public role, navigated. You were one of our first guests on our one of our first mm-hmm. shows back in March. And in that conversation, you told me about your first press conference <laughs> where you made the explicit point to say that you grew up here in Nashville, yeah. that community. You know, when you wanted to assure people that this was your community, why was it so important for you to express that in that way? You know, you may or may not know, I moved to Nashville when I was six years old from Iran. And so here's this guy um, with a funny name um, who at the time, you know, when I first moved here, I didn't know English. I, I didn't have all the cool clothes. And and perhaps growing up, um, that always gave me some anxiety um, around around when I'm in public. 
And now I'm, I'm a professional person. And even in all the success I've had professionally, and since immigrants often, we often throw out our professional accolades to give us credibility, right? Mm-hmm. It's, it's something I've noticed myself doing, I've noticed others around me doing. Mm-hmm. Um, in that moment when I was surrounded by um, people who, you know, I, I think pretty much everyone on the panel was, was um, white male, I felt like I had to reassure the community that, look, I'm one of you, I've, I feel your pain, I've committed to here and, and, and I'm gonna be, do give you my best. And so that, that was something that stuck with me throughout the whole time. If you're just tuning in, this is Nashville, and I'm your host, Kaliole Colonna. My next, my guest is Dr. Alex Jahangir, who led the city's COVID-19 task force. Now, you know, back to that, you know, making this point of letting everyone here in Nashville and Middle Tennessee know that you are one of us. You're in this community. You had the spotlight, and you've had time to reflect on that now. What does it mean to you to be able to show others who might come from a similar background or feel like an outsider, what is possible without having to throw out their resume as bona fides of proving that they're a good person or a part of the community? Yeah, you know, I, I hope, um, and I don't want to be presumptuous, but, you know, 12% of, of Nashvilleans have my story, right? they immigrants, new Americans to the city. Um, I'm a public school grad from Nashville, from went to MLK. Um, I would just, I just continue to work hard and I was able to give to my community. And I hope that that story for people who, who, who follow it and listen, hopefully will resonate. And I think, um, each one of us, all 700,000 people in Nashville and, and almost 2 million in the surrounding community. I think my greater message is that is, is one thing this, this has shown me is each of us has, we all live on one boat. And some of us may live in the nice suite upstairs on the boat and other ones live in, in the bottom of the boat, but we all live on the same boat and we all have the ability to capsize the boat or right the boat. Mm. And what I hope is that every individual recognizes the best way for us to succeed um, as a community is to work together towards addressing the hard problems that we have. Um, and, and, you know, it doesn't matter if you're this kid who moved here from Iran who didn't know English or if you eighth generation went to the best um, private schools in town. And I just hope that's the message that um, if anyone gets anything from me, it's that. In the foreword to the book, Dr. James Hildreth says, quote, I believe Dr. Jahangir's approach to set Nashville and Davidson County apart. His understanding that a historically black healthcare institution could be integral to Nashville's comprehensive response plan and that the task force must constantly communicate to all audiences, including those typically ignored, was not the national norm, end quote. You know, why was it important for you to do, to make your approach and to approach things the way that Dr. Hildreth described there? Look, 40% of our city um, is not white, right? About 28% are African-Americans, 12% are new Americans, and then there's probably other ethnicities in there. So to to address a health um, problem that disproportionately impacted um, people of color um, and not engage with people who have the trust of the community would be a fatal flaw. Um, and, and I think it was an easy decision for me. I went to high school right down the street from Meharry. Um, my father did his residency, he got his MPH from Meharry. I would go to walk over and, and to Meharry and work in the labs. I was familiar with what Meharry Medical College um, is and what it did for me. Um, so to be able to have a partner in Dr. Hildreth who was willing to leverage the great um, relationship and trust that Meharry Medical College had, 
uh, was an easy decision for me. So it's very kind of him to say those words, but it was, I, we're very blessed to be able to have him in his medical school. You say that looking at, oh, hold on one second. We got a tweet from Ashley King who says, what was the role of James Hildreth, president and chief executive of Meharry, Meharry Medical College? What was the role that? I mean, Dr. Hildreth was, uh, uh, was my partner um, throughout the whole thing. He first, obviously, I think if anyone who watched Dr. Hildreth on TV, one of the most calming, one of the most intelligent people who can explain things so perfectly. We had him as a guest on This Is um, Nashville. Amazing, yes, I agree. amazing gentleman. Um, but beyond that, I don't think people realize Dr. Hildreth is one of the world's most foremost, foremost um, infectious disease experts, especially around the HIV AIDS epidemic. Um, he and Dr. Fauci literally, I think, are, are good friends. Um, he runs a medical center that that had resources that he allowed to be used for the city. I mean, Dr. Hildreth had gave a lot to the city, both in himself and his organization. So it was an, again, he, he gave a lot. I guess I got about maybe two and a half minutes left. Um, near the end of the book, you described driving home down 12th South Avenue, 12th Avenue, Avenue South. It's a stretch of road that also becomes like a character in your story. You describe pulling out into your driveway and seeing your daughters playing in the yard. You say later that later on you recognize that they were becoming a part of something bigger than themselves. Tell me about that moment, what you meant by that. So the book goes from March 2020 to March 2021. And in March 2021, we had so much hope. You know, vaccines were out there. Um, the kids were starting to go to school. Uh, people weren't were not getting as sick. And... Um, I came back from operating and the patient I operated on had been vaccinated and it was really neat because they didn't have to be tested for the, the virus. And I saw them running around and, and I saw in my three children and our neighbor's kids who were playing with them, the hope that maybe they'll take this moment of this, this hard year we all survived and, and leverage it into the greater good for, for many other problems down the road. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, what the epilogue gets into is August of 2021 and how we let, um, our anger and, and our divisiveness that some people push kind of tear us apart. And so what I hope my kids and other kids and, and us now, our generation continues to, to push the good. And, and, but it was very a hopeful moment in March of 2021 for me. One last question for you, about 50 seconds. What gives you hope these days? I have, you know, almost every interaction I have gives me hope these days. Almost everyone I interact with, um, I see, I, I feel like our future is really bright and I'm just very fortunate and blessed to be here with everyone. I want to thank you so much for coming on to the show and being this wonderful guest. Dr. Alex Jahangir is the author of the new book, Hotspot, a doctor's diary from the pandemic. It documents his experience as the head of Nashville's COVID-19 task force. Dr. Jahangir, thank you again for coming on to the show today and thanks for this conversation. Really appreciate it. Thank you. We want to thank everyone who tuned in this hour. Tomorrow, neighborhood housing associations are important to our city, but they're having trouble finding new members. Why? This is Nashville is a production of WPLN News and Nashville Public Radio. Our show has only been possible because of your support. We're in the midst of our fall fund drive, and we need you to step up to make your donation now at thisisnashville.org. And while you're there, you can listen back to all of our episodes. 
Our producers are Steve Harush and Rose Gilbert. Our digital lead is Anna Gallegos Cannon. Michaela Elias is our technical director. Our executive producer is Andrea Tudhope. And the masterminds behind our theme music are LaRange and Namir Blade. Special thanks to Michael Montgomery and our digital producer this week, Cindy Abrams. The conversation doesn't end here. Tweet us at This Is Nashville. I'm Khalil Ekelona. We'll see you tomorrow, everybody. And be good to each other. Thank you.